Well, we just read the call of four of the 12 disciples. There were a lot of disciples, many disciples. Later on, Jesus is going to pick out 12 to be later called apostles. They will be with him uh, more permanently. But all four of the people that we just, looked, just read about, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are fishermen. They're the only two sets of brothers that we know of in, uh, among those who were following Jesus at this time. And they worked together. They worked individually. They had their own businesses, but they helped each other. We can see that elsewhere in the Gospels. The focus of these verses is just bare, right? It's just facts. And the, because, it's because the focus of these verses is not on Peter and Andrew and James and John. It's not on them. The focus of this passage is on the primacy, the priority, the supremacy, the preeminence, whatever term you want to use, the authority of Jesus. Everything that we see here, everything throughout the rest of this book is focused on the authority and the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus. Now, you, you look at this and say, okay, so Jesus is to be one, number one in my life. How do I get that from this passage? How do I get that from this? Well, we'll get there. But first, I want you to picture something for me. I'm going to do a little geography. How many of you enjoy Chickamauga Lake? How many of you have been to Chickamauga Lake? You enjoy it. Okay, good, good. The first service, people were sitting there saying, does he really want... What, what, what am I supposed to do? Right hand, left, both. I, you know, charismatic fisherman. What am I supposed to do? So it's good to see everybody just, just jumping in there. You enjoy Chickamauga Lake. Chickamauga Lake is a, a, a pretty good size. It's 57 square miles of surface area with this, all of its tributary. But I want you to picture a different lake. I want you to, to think of an inland lake that's 685 feet below, ze, below, below sea level. It is... 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. Maybe this is kind of proportional. Go out to the, to the end of the foyer. Just kind of picture this as that particular body of water. So this will be, this will be our map, and we'll pretend that that's north. So you look at this lake, and, it, and this is about the right proportion of the thing. And uh, this, this particular lake has all these towns along the coast. And most of the towns have most of their living made from the lake. And, of course, fish is a big part of that. And behind the towns are mountains where other things have, are, they're, they're fairly close by and other events uh, have taken place in the Gospels there. So this lake goes by different names. It's, it's called the uh, Sea of Tiberias. It's called Gennesaret. And its main name is the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, okay? So it's about 8 by 13 miles. And from the south end flows 156 or 157 miles, flows the Jordan River, winding its way down into where it empties into the Dead Sea below that. And surrounding the Sea of Galilee, this is in the province of Galilee. All that land over there, is Galilee. Now, if you look at some of the coastal towns, you'll recognize some of the names. Up here in the northeast corner are, are Bethsaida and Chorazin. And straight north is Capernaum. Now, Peter and Andrew and Philip, three of the disciples, are from Bethsaida. 
But Peter and Andrew eventually came to live in Capernaum, and that's where we see them most of the time. And then you keep on going down the coast, and you see some of the other cities uh, on down, the, uh, the, the cities of uh, uh, Gennesaret, the city of Magdalene. Remember Mary Magdalene? About halfway down. And near the bottom, do you remember where uh, you'd be looking at, right straight at the bottom, you'd be looking at Gadara at the, at the south eastern uh, southwestern side no southeastern side um do you remember Gadara? that's where the gathering demoniacs remember the guys where jesus cast the demons out and they went into the pigs and they rushed off the cliff into the what into the sea so all of this all so we're looking at all of this and if you if you were to go directly west uh just a a morning's walk that would take you to cana cana is where the wedding was where jesus turned the water into wine if you were to take a short day's walk a little further down you would reach from right from the coast you'd reach the town of nazareth which is four miles away from cana and which, which explains why it was easy for mary to be at the wedding of Cana. so all of this happens in this particular area uh, a lot of Jesus' ministry is going on in the Galilean area. And in fact, Jesus was not unknown to take a stroll on the lake. Now, all of this, all of this is Galilee, the province in which Jesus was raised in Nazareth, which is over there about a short day's walk. Because Galilee was bounded on the other side by the Mediterranean, and on this side, by the Sea of Galilee. That meant that any army that was coming from the north to the south would have to, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, doesn't matter, Medes, first place they have to target before they reach their target is Galilee. First place. So over the centuries, the Galileans have sort of developed an attitude. They uh, are really known as ornery people. <laughs> and they are so looking forward, so looking forward to the Messiah's coming so that he will conquer and destroy the Romans. So while Galilee was a target of armies, it was also a target of God's grace. Here's what I mean. I want you to follow me on this. You remember the phrase, have you heard the phrase or read the phrase in the Bible, a light to the nations? How many of you remember that phrase? A light to the nations. A light to the nations. Okay. So that's the phrase. I'm glad you've heard it because you just heard it read a lot around Christmas time. That phrase is repeated over and over especially in the book of Isaiah, a light to the, that's what God has called those who follow him to do and to be a light to the nations. We have the light and we are to share that light, the light of the gospel as that points eventually to Jesus Christ. That phrase, a light to the nations. What I'm getting at is there are bigger things going on in Galilee than geography. Galilee was a target of God's grace in this sense. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 9. Do you remember 
what you have heard at Christmas time. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in the presence as with the gladness of harvest and as men rejoice. Well, that's the promise. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Just before that, however, that phrase, we'll see that light, a light to the nations, a light to the nations. Just before that, this is what Isaiah says. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Okay, now look, look, stay with me. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, two of the tribes who, in, who, who uh, were embedded in the Galilean province. Zebulun, almost all the way around the Sea of Galilee. Naphtali, off to the east of that. Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay. So, Isaiah continues. He treated Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt, but later, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And Jesus... After he calls these four men, you know what he's going to do? He's going to enter the synagogue. And he's going to read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 to these Galileans. And then say, I am that light. Later, I am the light of the world. Later on, Peter in Acts, God has called us to share the gospel as a light to the nations. It all fits together. Jesus quoted these verses when he began his ministry in Galilee. So here we are in Galilee, or as Isaiah calls it, Galilee of the Gentiles. There are all kinds of things going on. Mark's gospel, however, Mark's focus is on one thing and one thing only. And we're going to come back to this over and over again. The authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Now, our response is critical we do not have the same call as the four fishermen but we do have the same calling what does that look like look at verse mark chapter 1 verse 16 as he was going by the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew the brother of simon casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen let me just pause here for just a moment and we're going to be seeing quite a lot about fish and fishermen and boats and so on uh, in these next chapters. But here's a little aside. Fishermen did not use a rod and reel and head for Lake Chickamauga. Their fishing boats, uh, and, and several of those fishing boats have been from around the first century have been found, submerged, so we know a little bit about them. On average, they were seven and a half feet wide. So if you go to about from a, the edge of the platform, uh, to about right here, that's how wide they were, and they were 27 feet long on average. I have my, my uh, uh, tape measure here yesterday, and uh, it only goes to 25 feet. But it went from one end to the other, and then a couple of feet over. So you can get an idea for how large those fishing vessels were. They weren't small skiffs or dinghies or little tiny lifeboats. They were substantial boats. And 
from these boats, they employed their nets, either close to the shore or out. There were two kinds of nets, a little bit more detail, a little bit more color to our black and white picture. Two kinds of nets. There were cast nets and drag nets. The, the cast net was about 10 to 15 feet uh, around, and it, was, it, was, uh, it had weights embedded around the circumference. It was really kind of a skill, like a cowboy throwing a, a rope. You, know? it, you, you would twirl the net around to where it would land on the water's surface evenly, and then the weights would take the net down, and then the drawstring, you'd pull, it, uh, pull that tight and pull in whatever fish were captured by the net. And that's what Peter and Andrew were doing uh, right here. Drag nets were about 100 feet long in, in, in the form of a semicircle. They were weighted also, but they were dragged behind the boat as, as it was moving through the water. And then that would be drawn in hand over hand, and it was hard work. And I'll tell you, the guys who were doing that uh, developed a lot of serious strength because that was what their daily activity was. And this was the occupation of Peter and Andrew and James and his brother John. So here we see them. They're casting a net into the sea. In verse 17, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Let's close in prayer. Now, if, if you read... Yes, don't get excited. If you read this by itself... You, you start to wonder about a lot of things. Why would they follow him? I mean, Jesus did not walk around with a halo. He didn't have the kind of magnetic personality that whenever people entered his presence, they suddenly forgot about all of their commitments and personal responsibilities. He came as an ordinary man. Scripture is very clear about that. And not a fisherman, a carpenter. So are they going to follow him, become carpenter apprentices? What's going on? Why would they follow him? And here's where Mark, as a sort of a bottom line gospel, uh, is, is seen. His po Mark's point is not to give us a complete timeline of how these fishermen met Jesus. Mark's point is all about the authority of Jesus. Actually, they met Jesus about a year or so earlier. Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. And they had already believed the message of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist pointed out who Jesus was. And they followed Jesus, or they, you know, they, they caught up with him, and they spent time with him. Maybe a day, maybe longer, we're not sure. Remember, uh, when Jesus, uh, when, I'm sorry, when Judas' replacement was an issue in, the, in uh, Acts chapter 1, they were going to replace Judas. Uh, do you remember what Peter said? It's imperative that whoever this person is will be one who was with us from the baptism of John. So that, that's early on. So at any rate, here, here we've got these men who have known Jesus. And uh, even though Simon Peter and Andrew didn't fully understand Jesus, and of course, Peter got his name later. I just can't help calling him Peter. Uh, even though they didn't fully understand Jesus, they knew enough to know that they wanted to be with him. This is probably a good as place as any to mention what I've already indicated, I think. Jesus wasn't always with his disciples. They'd be with him for a while, sometimes for a day, sometimes longer. Then they go home. They didn't abandon their relationships or their business. 
the responsibilities. They'd return to their fishing boats. Uh, by the way, where were they when Jesus was walking on the water? They were out fishing. After the resurrection, some of them went back to fishing. Now, that's mostly when they were in the Galilee area. When they were down in Samaria and below that in Judea with the cities of Jerusalem and, and uh, 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 Bethany and, and Sychar and, and, uh, and so on. Uh, now, um, yeah, Jerusalem. When they were down in Judea, they were with him the full time. But the longer they were with Jesus, the longer the periods, apparently, that they remained with Jesus until the end when they weren't with him, when they deserted him. Now, what was it that Jesus asked of them? Follow me. That's not quite what you might think it means. An Eastern idiom, it's more walk with me, be with me. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. That's the idea here, walk with me. And he's not talking about social distancing with Jesus six feet away and they're all behind him looking at his back as he's walking away from them that's i think the picture that some of us have of that that's not it that's not it at all walk with me and i will make you fishers of men what's critical here is the authority of jesus on display and it is front and center now i am getting ahead of our studies uh, but it is so clear look look with me at verses 21 and 22 they went into capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. Now, Mark doesn't tell us about the teaching, but it's where he quoted Isaiah 9 about God sending his grace to Galilee. Okay, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, how did the scribes? Because that's the contrast. How did the scribes teach? Well, we have examples that, that appear to extend back to earliest times when there's a theological dispute. What is the truth? How do you arrive at the truth? What is the truth of this theological dispute? Well, here's the answer. Rabbi A says this, and here are his arguments. But Rabbi B says this, and here are his arguments. And Rabbi C, on the other hand, said this. And here are his arguments. What's the answer? Yes. The truth is in there somewhere. You navigate through the... You know. So, <laughs> what did Jesus do? He taught with authority. This is the truth. Listen to the close of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to read to you the last phrases. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching... For he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Later on in this very chapter, Mark 1, when Jesus cast out a demon, Mark 1, 27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. 
the place where God's grace was going to come first. This continues through the rest of the book. In chapters 3 and in chapter 6, Jesus gives the disciples authority. It's not authority in themselves. It's derived authority from him. He gives them authority to cast out demons and to minister. Later, his enemies will ask, by, in chapter 11, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? It's all about authority. Hey, there's one example that I love so much. And I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 2 in Mark. One more example of the authority of Jesus that the four fishermen and eventually the rest of the disciples would come to know and embrace. I just love this. We'll be studying this in future weeks. But in Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, Gary, you just jumped right in the middle of the context. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. This man was paralyzed, and he had these friends who were trying to get him to Jesus to be healed. They couldn't get uh, uh, close to Jesus because of the crowds. You remember the story, don't you? So what did they do? Yeah, they, got him, they, they somehow got him levered up to the, leveraged up to the rooftop and got him through the thatched roof and down to Jesus. And I, believe me, they, people knew that something was about to happen as, his, as he was lowered in in front of Jesus. And, and so Jesus, in verse 5, seeing their faith, these people who loved this man and believed absolutely that Jesus could heal him, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, you are healed. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He didn't say that. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus heals his soul. That wasn't what was expected. And look at the response in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, and this should really spook them if he knows what they're thinking, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And then he asked them a question. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Well, the answer is obvious. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's not verifiable. But to say, get up and walk, that's pretty verifiable. Jesus responds, Jesus continues in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has, here's the word, authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. And he did. And look at the response at the end of verse 12. The people who were there, they were saying, we have never seen anything like this. The authority of Jesus. Well, for right now, back in chapter 1, for right now, Peter and Andrew don't know about any of this yet. They are submitting themselves to what they do know and understand about the authority of Jesus. They know some things, but here's the, here's the thing I love. That's enough for them. What they do know is enough for them. And 
their lives are about to be transformed in ways they have no idea. But first, there's another set of brothers, the only other disciples related to each other. Look at verse 19. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Take a look at that word mending. We're going to come back to it later. Make a few observations. First of all, James and John appear to be heirs of a fishing fleet that was owned by their father, Zebedee. He had multiple boats and hired workers. You see this elsewhere in the Gospels also. And we know some things. Uh, uh, and by the way, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. What else do we know about James and John? Well, they had a nickname. Sons of Thunder. Probably well known by the Galilean police juvenile division. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of Jack London's book, Call of the Wild? Okay, I almost named this sermon <laughs> with that title, The Call of the Wild. Uh, when I look at our four fishermen, uh, they seem to fit the bill because they're also buddies with James and John. Peter, Andrew, that's just cut out of the same cloth. Call of the Wild. Do you remember later when Jesus was traveling through Samaria? And one of the Samaritan villages would not let them have passage through the village. Do you remember two of the disciples said, Lord, let us call down fire from heaven and burn them up. Guess who? Sons of Thunder. James and John. If you walk with Jesus, he will transform you. I love the fact that John became known as the disciple of love. He was the one to whom Jesus committed his mother. James would be the very first one of the twelve to be executed. John would be the last. Well, these four know each other. They sometimes work together. Uh, I should probably mention that Peter and John are good friends, and that friendship will become deeper. You're going to see Peter and John together through the Gospels and through the book of Acts. They're always spending time together. They're always uh, ministering together. They were very, very close, these men. So, uh, in fact, Zebedee, their father, I think I'll mention this, Zebedee uh, was, apparently had the level of business that he was known down in Jerusalem by the high priest. So that when Jesus was arrested and put through the Jewish proceedings, John was given access to that meeting, and he got Peter in. And that's where Peter denied Christ three times. So all of this is backdrop. Jesus called James and John. And who's with Jesus when he calls them? Peter and Andrew. And they join them. What's their response? They follow him. Okay, great story. It's clear, right? With nothing unusual about it. Wrong. Wrong on several levels. What we have just looked at, what we have just summarized, is radically different from anything first century Jews would have experienced or expected. And we don't know that because we are so familiar with the story. There are three uniquenesses here that are very important. Here's the first one. Rabbis did not issue invitations for disciples to follow them. It was the other way around. Disciples, potential disciples, would ask rabbis to follow them. 
and to be able to follow them. And then the rabbis would decide whether or not they were worthy, trained, respectable enough. That's not how Jesus went about it. He's the one who initiated this. For Jesus to break with tradition, for him to set this strange precedent, <laughs> had to have a really good reason. I know what it was. That's because, just you know, kind of like a baseball scout looking for attending a high school game to get the be- very best talent. Jesus is scouting for the very best talent, right? That's what he's doing. It has to be that, right? Oh, well, here's where the second uniqueness comes in. First, Jesus initiated the process. Secondly, look at the men Jesus chose. Where exactly is the talent? What qualifications and character do they have? I mean, rabbis look for people who are going to carry on their work to represent them. They would look for spiritual depth, knowledge of the Scriptures, people who are admired and respected and maybe popular, very smart, very perceptive, very discerning, uh, someone with good relational skills, maybe especially with children. Some maybe would be nice if they had musical skills, but at least have them be morally courageous. So how do the disciples stack up against just that possible list? Not so well, not so much. Listen to some of the things as you read on that they are rebuked for. Listen, this is what they are rebuked for. Lack of forgiving spirits. Lack of prayerfulness. Lack of courage. Lack of sympathy. Three times. Get this one. Ready? Lack of spiritual depth, discernment, and insight. Nine times that we know of. The only disciple who was really a, possibly a good candidate was named Judas. I mean, Matthew had financial experience, but a not-so-great reputation. And Judas, instead of Matthew, was chosen as the treasurer. The people Jesus chose, totally, radically, unexpected. And, and here's the thing. There is a very important point embedded in Jesus' cho- choice of these men. We tend to elevate them. Oh, they were the apostles. Because we're kind of used to thinking that way. But here is a stark truth. Jesus chose men with no qualifications. If they had, if the 12 had been the top candidates for leadership and ascendancy in the hierarchy of Judaism, then Christianity would be explainable in terms of them. But it's not. Totally unexplainable, totally unexpected, totally miraculous. Explainable only in terms of Jesus. They had one and only one requirement. Jesus had one and only one requirement. Here's his requirement. You ready for it? One requirement. They had to be committed to Jesus. That's it. Commitment to Jesus. He didn't call the good-looking, the smart, the rich, the sinless, the pure. He called those who would commit to him to be number one in their lives, to be the priority in their lives. Not that they were always perfect in doing that and carrying it out. They weren't. We aren't. It's kind of funny. They got into trouble every time they put Jesus down the list and placed one of their interests as number one. They always got in trouble whenever that happened. But the point is, this was their heart. 
Jesus is preeminent. He's first, committed to him. You know, as you look through the disciples, um, there's one, one line that I just absolutely love. And it, it's uttered by uh, the disciple that we came, come to know as Doubting Thomas. I studied Thomas with you a few years ago. And uh, I, I told you at that time, you know, his name is Thomas Didymus, the twin. Uh, I, I told you at that time that Thomas is always depressed and always down. And he's, I just hear him with the voice of Eeyore, you know, in, in Winnie the Pooh, just Eeyore. Uh, when the, Jesus kept saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they kept saying, no, Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to uh, be put to death, and I'm going to raise on the third day. And they, didn't, they didn't hear past the put to death. And, they just, and finally, when it came to when they came to understand, yeah, he's really going. He really is. He's he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he's never deviated from that. And now they're faced with a choice. And here's the spokesman, Thomas, Eeyore. Well, let's go with him so that we can at least die with an heir. The thing I love about that speech is that for Thomas... And here was his heart commitment. Now they all ran away later. We know that. But here was his heart commitment. It was better to be dead with Jesus than to be alive without him. That's the bottom line, to be committed to him. It's not a stretch to think about Jesus' call on our lives from that after the resurrection. And we now have the same commission after the resurrection that the twelve had. And and. By the way, I, I think we need to pause and ask. Remember I said that there are three uniquenesses. We looked at the first two. Before I look at the third one, I, I think it's worth pausing here and asking uh, or making the observation that most of us are not called to leave our careers and follow Jesus, to walk with him. Most of them in the New Testament weren't. Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics. Aristos, the uh, city treasurer of Corinth. Uh, uh, the centurion, a couple of centurions and serving him through the army. The point is, here's the thing, if I can just grasp this in my own soul, the point is, Jesus does not call you to leave your career, he calls you to leave your career as number one in your life. And that he is to be number one. And you serve him through your career. So your career is not number one, He's number one. You're not even to have your family as number one in your life. You remember Jesus said, if you're, just not, you're not worthy to follow me unless you hate your father and mother. And of course, that's a hyperbole because what he means is by comparison of all other allegiances that are clamoring for your attention and your commitment, I am to be first over father, mother, anybody. The thing is though, all, while all other claims recede in importance and in comparison to Jesus, He is number one, and then you love your family through serving Him. Your health is not to be number one in your life. Paul was given a health condition that we called the thorn in the flesh, or he called the thorn in the flesh. Um, some people think it was something different, but I, I do think there's solid evidence to say it was a physical thing. 
which means, and, and that thorn in the flesh became the means of a different kind of testimony for Paul, where Jesus told him, are you ready for this? My grace is enough for you, for spiritual strength is perfected in physical weakness. Spiritual strength, strength is perfected in weakness, and this is what he means. Spiritual strength is perfected in physical weakness. That is a hard lesson, but that is a true lesson, and that's a lesson of priorities. Your religious freedom is not to be number one in your life. We value our religious freedom. We, just like Paul exercised his Roman citizenship, we'll exercise our citizenship very appropriately. That's fine. But my brothers and my sisters, we're not always going to be as religiously free as we are at this moment. But the thing, truth is, no, no time in the world has anyone be, been as free as we are right now. And look at your brothers and sisters in other countries right now. And look at the early church under the thumb of Rome. Religious freedom, not so much. And yet, in those circumstances, they turned the world right side up. So, we could go on and on. You know, you remember some of Paul's greatest ministries were from prison. Not something I want. But that was the way that God used those things. And that's what it means to walk with him. Many of the things in our lives might demand our allegiance is number one. Our finances, our portfolio, our career, we mentioned that. Uh, popularity, status, sports, hobbies, whatever. Here's the deal. Nothing is to displace Jesus in your life as number one. He is number one. And this is what it means to walk with. Walk with me. I said there are three characteristics about the call of these fishermen. Number one, uh, three uniquenesses, rather. Number one, Jesus initiated it. Number two, the men themselves had no traditional qualifications. Here's the third uniqueness. Rabbis would often have someone else prepare and train the potential disciple, the candidates, for them before they entered or before they considered them for service. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to train you. I'm going to enable you. I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to equip you as fishers of men. Look, he calls us all by his grace to be saved through faith plus nothing. He transforms and equips us. I love the fact that Ephesians 4 describes the role of the pastor teacher as one who equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. The saints, all of us, Equips is the same Greek word with the same stem, rather, that's used here in Mark where James and John were equipping their nets, mending their nets. And I've told you about this word before. You may remember it. It's a word that refers to something that in its present condition is broken and it can't fulfill its purpose. So that the nets were broken. They have to be mended. They have to be equipped so that they can fulfill their purpose as nets. It's used by Galen, the physician in the second century in Greek literature, where he, was, he would mend a broken leg. He would equip, that is, so that as that leg healed, it could then be used to fulfill its purpose and walk. And we are broken. And we are to be equipped with the Word of God 
and empowered by the Spirit of God to walk with. That is what he has called us to do. It's all of a piece. And the Lord is entirely superintending the process. Jesus claims complete competence and entire responsibility to do what he promises. He doesn't say, you know, if you follow me, I'm going to just do my very best to make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, if you enter a training program and if you go through that successfully and after I'll interview you and then we'll have HR call you and then possibly you'll walk with me. No, our job is to walk with. And he takes the responsibility to equip and enable us. Now, when you look at these men, they're unschooled, they're petty at times and vindictive, they're fearful, they are spiritually thick, and I so identify. They're not examples of righteousness. You know what? They're examples of faith and commitment to Jesus. I don't know if you were reading the devotionals in our, in our daily reading with uh, the Gospel Coalition as our church reads through the Bible. Those devotionals are really quite good. And early in the week, there was this, th- these words were a part of the devotional from Genesis 15, verse 6. Listen to this. What God demands of his image bearers, what he has always demanded, is righteousness. But in this sinful race... What he accepts, crediting it as righteousness, is faith. Faith that acknowledges our dependence upon God and takes God at his word. They are not examples of righteousness. They're examples of faith and commitment to Jesus. We're not examples of righteousness. He has called us to be examples of faith, say by his grace, to walk with. Their decision to follow Jesus did not point to their greatness. It points to Jesus' greatness. His calling and then his equipping puts his greatness on display. And the good news is that Jesus uses our weaknesses to display his greatness. Do you remember later on, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and all the other disciples were corralled by the Sanhedrin? And guess what? They reminded the Sanhedrin of someone. Listen to this, Acts 4.13. They, the Sanhedrin, were marveling and began, and by the way, that's not marveling with, oh, wonderful. That's marveling with, oh, no. And began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. When you follow Jesus, you're not only committing to a set of doctrines, you're committing to a person. Now, let, me, let me explain that because I want, I want to kind of close with this idea. Your doctrine is foundational. It's absolutely important. But the issue, you can be committed to the right doctrine but not walking with. You understand that? The issue really is, am I walking with Jesus? Let me put it this way. And I, I want our young people to listen especially to this because, you know what, we love you. 
we love you, we love you. And I, I, I want you to know, uh, we do not want you to enter adulthood with toxic baggage. So, I, we know you're faced with all kinds of temptations, with hard choices. And this is a question for all of us. When we're faced with those things, for all of us, the question should, you know, should I do this or not? Sometimes we just emotionally go ahead and try to suppress logical thinking, suppress scriptural truth. Do I do this or not? The question... The thing is, as long as you leave the question in the abstract, you can rationalize your way around it and ignore it and suppress it. I mean, if, if the question becomes, uh, should my behavior here, what, should this choice cohere with biblical doctrine, that's lofty enough to ignore. Let's make it more concrete. How do I walk with Jesus now in this? When I do this, am I walking with? Would I invite Jesus to accompany me in this choice? When you ask that question that way, makes it harder to rationalize what you don't want to hear. Kind of exposes our inner motives, doesn't it? The result of walking with Jesus, I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and yet I live, but not I, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if I think I'm walking with, I have a diagnostic question. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do people see me in me or do people see Christ in me? Is my life explainable in terms of me or does it point beyond me? to the one whom I'm following. Am I walking with my Lord? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want to say a few words before our closing prayer. I want you to think with me about Jesus' authority and about our response and how to consider your own personal commitment to Him as we pray. Following Jesus means taking anything in which you find meaning and significance and saying, Lord, this is yours. Do with it what you will. It's opening up those closets that you have kept under lock and key, saying, this is mine. Jesus can't have this. It's opening that up and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Every bit of me. So, is our prayer, Lord, with everything that I am, Imperfect as I am, I am committed to you to walk with you. Is he enough? Let's pray. Lord, you have authority over my family, my schoolwork, my hobbies, my job, over my marriage, 
over my schedule, over my finances, over my anger, over my attitudes, over all my relationships, my friendships, my dreams. You are Lord over all. Enable me, Lord, to take up your cross daily and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that prayer is yours.